0: Hello again, welcome to the Content Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Halverson. This podcast is brought to you by contentstrategy.com and Brain Traffic, a content strategy consultancy. Find out more about Brain Traffic at Braintraffic.com. Hello. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> Ms. Tracy Playle, Is that you? It's nice to be here. <laughs> it's good to hear your voice. Uh, Tracy, it's, it's, I've been looking forward to catching up with you uh, for several weeks now, and I'm glad that we uh, were able to connect. Um, for our listening audience, could you please tell us a little bit
1: about yourself? I can indeed. Um, so yeah, I'm Tracy Plough. I am the CEO and Chief Content Strategist. I, I give myself my job titles being the CEO um, at a company <laughs> called Pickle Jar Communications. So as you can tell from the accent, I'm based in the the United Kingdom. And uh, I specialize in supporting the higher education sector primarily with with content strategy. Excellent. Um,
0: tell And we actually... When did we first meet? I think that probably it was through
1: Confab Higher Ed. Is that right? It was indeed. I I think you had me on the program first, it must have been about 2014, and I was over speaking about uh, comedy and humor in in content, and yeah, and I've done that quite a few times now on the various confab programs over the years, and it's one of my my favorite topics to talk about, but I'm by no means an expert, I'm just an enthusiast. I'm just a hilarious content strategist. That's my
0: primary (laughs) qualification, is I'm hilarious. I spend my my life just laughing at things, and just (laughs) thinking we have to see the funny side and laugh. You know what? That's great because mostly I just cry. Mostly I'm really content. No, it's not true. I'm a lighthearted, jolly (laughs) optimist. Also not always true. Tracy, how did you come to content strategy?
1: Oh, I, I think in, in pretty much about the same way that most of, most of us came to it, and that's we kind of fell into it. Um, it, it always was like an accident, doesn't it, in this, in this career, in this profession. I, I was originally going to be an academic, of all things. So I uh, went back to what was my, my first university after doing my master's degree. Um, went back. And, and what did you do your master's in? It. Oh, so my master's in, is in American Literature and Culture. Um, oh, That's so, funny. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and my, my bachelor's is in uh, English Lit. So, uh, you know, literature through, through and through, was going to do a, a PhD, uh, went back to my university to start it, didn't get funding to do the PhD. So I started working in the communications office of my, my university to part fund my, my studies, my research. And suddenly got really, really interested in, in learning about all of the amazing things that universities actually do that went well beyond my own um, sphere of experience of being at university. So I'm suddenly learning all about the research they're doing and alumni engagement and fundraising and community you know, impact, all this kind of stuff. And got really, really fascinated in the work that I was doing. And suddenly one day realized that I was completely fatigued of reading novels. Mm-hmm. Um, I, cu- I could no longer read a, a book without wanting to reach for a pencil to annotate the margins. <laughs> um, and, and I just kind of realized that all of the, all of the joy of, of studying literature had sort of sapped, the, the, you know, that has been sapped out of it, really, by studying it for, for the previous four years. And mm. I was loving my job. So they created a, a full-time post for me in the communications office. So I, I started working in content through working in university communications. But really, it was a kind of a, a PR route into it for me. My last few years there, I was a head of a service called Research TV. And my, my job was to communicate research from a number of different universities, through um, video news releases to television channels around the world. Um, and as we're doing this, YouTube comes along, iTunes pops up and, and starts a, a section of iTunes that was known as iTunes U, so it was all about university content, and suddenly the, what we were doing, we are trying to put this content out there on television channels around the world, became a lot more relevant to the online audience, um, and but for me, what, what we were really doing is telling good stories and that, that I think was probably the first point at which I really saw myself as a content professional. But the, the term content strategist probably didn't come into my life until, I don't know, maybe about seven or eight years ago, I think I really started to think of myself as a content strategist.
0: And what were some of the, what were some of the sort of the key problems that you were up against solving? Because I think that that is really when people start to think of themselves as strategists, when they're, you know, suddenly not just uh, designing or putting, well, it's like people who are designing who suddenly are like, wait, I'm designing for experiences, there are problems to solve. I'm a user experience professional. Similarly, I yeah. think with content folks where they're suddenly like, I'm not just cranking out blog posts or videos. I'm really trying to solve uh, problems for both users and the business. Tell me about some of the, of the problems that you came up against that you were excited to help uh, the university solve.
1: Yeah, there, there were a couple of things really. And I, I think that the big one for me was dealing with and, and the constant frustration of dealing with this uh, this mythical audience known as the general public and the, constantly hitting up against people you know kind of rattling off their objectives that they're trying to reach in the, in the education sector and, and then they kind of go but really we just need the general public to love us and you know like, well, what does that mean that actually means absolutely nothing and and if we can't really dig into understanding our audiences properly we're, we're not serving our institutions properly either um so I think it was really for me at the point at which I started to feel like I was starting to unpick this concept of the general public um, and these big, broad nonsense audiences, really, that, that started making me think that I was probably more strategic in terms of how I was willing, able and probably driven to think. But the, the second part for me around that was also um, when, when I set, set up Pickle Child Communications 11 years ago and actually made that move to become a consultant. Um, I actually specialised in uh, social media um, activities, you know, that was what everyone in the education sector wanted to to know about and we've been doing loads of that at the University of Warwick where I worked and um, the frustration with that emerged from, you know, we could come up with great ideas for for creating engaging content to play out on the social channels. But the moment that you even tried to connect that to a larger user experience or audience experience or journey or however you wanted to see it, we had no control over shaping that content. So even if it was something as simple of, you're gonna create an amazing piece of content for social, but actually you wanna send them to the website, that experience would be totally disjointed so it was really through that work that I then found myself coming actually back to doing a lot more website work I'd actually done quite a lot of work on on web when I was working at Warwick University and then kind of had this gap in, in my career of a few years where I didn't do a lot on that and um, so then sort of you know came, came back to that and, and it all sort of then fell into place and that was about around about the time that I, I think I probably picked up your book and, and the term content strategy kind of landed on me and went yeah this this is what we're doing here. How, tell me about uh, Pickle Jar Communications.
0: What is behind the name Pickle Jar?
1: Do oh, I, I, you know, for someone that works in content, I really, really should have a better story for, for this. It's crazy, right? 11 years, I still haven't come up with a good story while we called it. So the, the real reason, um, it was a line in a song. I was originally going to set the company up with somebody else. He eventually didn't join the company because his wife got pregnant and that was bad, bad time to um, to leave a stable, secure job and try and be a consultant. So we everything we thought of was either registered as a, a limited company here in the UK or the domain name was already purchased. So all of our great ideas we had for company names just weren't going to happen. So he went home from work one day and was listening to a song on his iPod on the, on the way home. And, um, and he just had this line in it about being in a pickle jar. And he came back into work the next day and he kind of said, you know, that line sort of sums up how I felt about our conversation around company, coming, coming up with a company name. And we went, so what about pickle jar communications? And we just kind of went, yeah, it, it doesn't mean anything, but it sounds kind of fun. but. I kind of, I love it in a way because it's, it's a little bit quirky and it's a little bit silly. Um, you know, in, in a world in which our, our job is all about helping people to assign meaning and, and think about meaning and think about connection with things, to have a, a kind of a company name that is completely meaningless and completely disconnected to anything. I don't know, it kind of, and that sits quite comfortably with me. So yeah, one day we will come up with a better story, but we haven't yet given ourselves the time or the space to, to do that.
0: I don't know. I think that's a really great story. I mean, t- I think that every single person can just be like, I had this great idea. And then I found out that 80 other people had it and yeah. then I didn't know where to go with it. And so I think that it's terrific that you, that you both were just like, ah. Well, it, this sounds good. Let's just go with this. And that it, I mean, it's got, I have never heard of another company name like that. It really stands out. Uh, and I think that it really nicely reflects your personality and sort of uh, the way that you talk about and present your practice out into the world, which is very lighthearted, very positive. Uh, it's just, I just think it's great
1: so one of my um one of my silly stories around the the company name is that i I have quite an unusual surname um and so most people can't remember my surname or or certainly wouldn't know how to spell it and someone came up to me at conference and they'd heard me speak at another conference before and they were like yeah we wanted to wanted to find you and we wanted to you know get in touch with you and and so they typed in tracy pickle um (laughs) they they managed to find me (laughs) and i just i love that i just i'm you know i i love my surname and i'm very proud of it but there is this temptation to change my surname to pickle because it, how fun would that be
0: that would be real fun that is that's amazing the, it's oh, cute. yeah it's cute? great it's great <laughs> talk about a personal brand i don't normally like that phrase but in your case you've got it good work <laughs> Hey, Tracy, one of the things that I was really interested in talking to you about today uh, is, and something that I've thought about, Sarah Richards, uh, who runs Content Design London, and I spoke about uh, at length in an earlier podcast in this series, uh, is is the rise of content, the rapid rise of content design as a practice in the UK, and uh, sort of how it sits alongside content strategy, or doesn't, or perhaps has subsumed it a little bit, and you very specifically offer content strategy services through pickle jar communications can you just talk a little bit about about the rise of that of that term and that discipline and how that has or has not kind of shaped the way that you are setting up and delivering your services to your clients
1: yeah it's funny actually we we um we received our first ever um brief only a few weeks ago from from an organization that was specifically asking for content design um services and and not using the term content strategy and, you know, I have to give a shout out to Sarah because she's she's my hero and, and increasingly becoming my, my friend as well. So, uh, and I, I think, you know, her work and, and the work of the, the, the GDS team and everyone around that has been absolutely amazing. In just uh, the art of, if I'm, being completely honest, stating in the bleeding obvious. Um, you know, it, it really isn't rocket science, is it? To just kind of go, you know, we, we, need to, <laughs> we need to create content that people actually want and need and not put all the fluff around it. And, and that's what I, I love. And, I, the, you know, the, the user-centered approach that it takes is wonderful. The difference for, for me from content strategy and content design, I kind of see content design as being a, a, almost a subset of content strategy. Um, or, if you will, I see content design as being part of the part of the state that takes content strategy to implementation. Um, so it's almost a transitory thing where, where we can take that strategy and we can turn it into something can actually do something with it. And I think it's very, very difficult to get a content strategy into implementation without a, a content design mentality, if that makes sense. So for me, things like you know, creating page tables, uh, you know, do, doing the user story work, all of that is is part of that linking process between going okay we've got this overarching strategic vision that we want to implement how do we actually turn that to something one page um, and that for me is what content design does beautifully you know wh- whether it is any more developed here in the uk I, I don't know you know i a lot of my learning comes from all over the place really and and, partic- and particularly mostly from attending confab um, so I think maybe we've just done a good job in the UK of kind of crafting that term and owning that term. And I think because a lot of the work around that was around such a visible site in the UK, which is the, you know, the Gov UK website, which of course, you know, pretty much everyone, if you're a citizen of the United Kingdom, needs to use at some point. In fact, it's probably the only, the only website where that term general public is, is okay to use. You know, it, it's become very vis- visible because it was linked to such a, a, a visible project.
0: So when your clients then come to you with a request for, or saying, hey, we need content strategy, we need content strategy services, talk to me about the kinds of problems that they're hoping to solve.
1: Uh, they can come from so many different positions. So some of the people that will approach us will be, uh, oh, th- these are my favorite ones to hate, right? Oh, let's start with these ones. <laughs> um, the, the ones who have- um, I know exactly what you're going to say. I, like, I know you yeah, do. I'm, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, well, check me if I'm right on this but it's the ones who are we've just launched our website and <laughs> now we need to think about content yeah,
0: um, yeah I was gonna say it's the ones that are like okay we need to deliver content to the devs in four weeks and we're ready yeah. to start talking about it it's, yeah okay, I mean exactly.
1: some of them are even later than that I mean some of them I know, The, the devs have done their work, and yeah, it's exactly. like, you know help us fill in these boxes and oh, and boy. that that yeah that fills me with horror um we still get them we get them less now so so some of them you know I guess half of our kind of content strategy projects are Built around some kind of development with a website. So, more often than not, no, we're, we're now able to, to argue the case that, that that process needs to start before any kind of design and build. Um, and we, we're getting quite successful in actually making that happen now. Um, the, the other angle that people come to us with, and, and actually, I think what they're really after is a content marketing strategy rather than a content strategy. And, and that's when. They have a specific campaign, um, a specific objective that they're, they're trying to work towards within the organization. So it could be um, student marketing, student recruitment. Um, it might be a fundraising campaign or alumni engagement activity. Uh, sometimes it's research communication. So it's, it's those kind of drivers and you get these pockets and silos within higher ed. that are are kind of serving their own objectives and their own agendas. And they they come and they've kind of notionally heard about content strategy. They might have heard me speak at a a conference that might not be a a content strategy conference. It more often than not is something different. It's a marketing conference, it's a communications Mm. or web conference. Um, And they sort of have this notion of an idea that content strategy might be a kind of magic um, fix for them. Uh, for something, which g- generally I don't think it is, you know, because often when we, we get in and work on any of these projects, you know, as, as you know, more often than not, that the content is generally not the biggest problem. It's normally the people and how they work together. <laughs> that's often the problem. So, so some of the problems that actually need to be fixed are and, and not necessarily going to be fixed by thinking about the content, but thinking about everything else that's kind of framed around that. And that's why uh, about two years ago, I, I developed this kind of um, model that I spoke about at Confab last year, which is the 10-part the uh, ways of thinking about how mature your, your organization is with, with your approach to content strategy. Most of those things relate to people and culture rather than to uh, the, the, the content or what you might see on page itself. How are you able to move the
0: conversation when people say, we have problems with our content to sort of like gently guide them to actually you've got problems with
1: people in process? That's such a lovely way of putting it, isn't it? I let them do it themselves. Uh, I just ask the right questions and shape workshops and the like to get them to arrive at that conclusion themselves. i mean to be honest there are very very few projects that you go into where where that's not going to be a problem um, especially mm. working in higher ed where we're working with these you know massive complicated organizations who are full of people with very very powerful egos um and also full of people whose life's profession is some kind of intellectual pursuit and, and research and digging into stuff and all of that kind of stuff so um you know it's it's a really challenging environment to to work in so stakeholder engagement side of the work that we do is probably one of the most important pieces and for, for me what I've really learned particularly over the last sort of four or five years of doing this is getting people to arrive at things and getting them to think that it was their idea that they arrived at it is probably one of the most powerful things that you can do in in this job. So um, if we want to develop a particular approach with a content strategy, you know, we might run some kind of consultation workshops early on with various different stakeholders. And you know, we get them to, to come up with ideas in, in some of those sessions as well. And then, you know, six weeks later, let's say when we're presenting back the, the strategy to them, if you will, um, we will present things back to them as though it was their idea in the first place, even though it wasn't. It will just be along the lines of, you know, that brilliant idea that you came up with in that workshop you attended? Well, here it is again. And they might be scratching their heads going, oh, I'm pretty sure I didn't think of that. But you make them think they did. And that's the same with, with helping them see seeing that their their organizational structures, the way in which they interact as people um, is often the barrier. So I think, you know, that the role of a content strategist is really to become a bit of a people maneuverer and a problem solver um in, in that respect. And I kind of feel that is, you know, a skill that we we have in droves and we sometimes apply it really, really well to the content and the content strategy and the user experience, but we don't always apply it quite so well to the stakeholder engagement side of things. So to give you an example of this, um, uh, I was running a workshop recently for for a client and the session was all about, um, the the brief that I had was, can you come and run a session for us that's gonna help us um, work across different faculties within the the university to collaborate more around our content? Because at the moment we're all sending stuff out all over the place, we're conflicting, we're wasting lots of um, time and resource and we'd really, really like to just, you know, get some more benefit out of being more collaborative. And so in this exercise, I, in this workshop, I had them, uh, throughout the day, they had, you know, some giant post-its on the wall and they had to capture through the day in each group three, three big things that they kind of felt they needed to take on and, and achieve. And I went over to to one of the groups and they put their three big things up on the wall, having a talk and conversation around what they were and why, why they had come up with those things. And through the conversation, someone said well you know what we really need tracy is we actually need an institutional content strategy that that guides us and steers us as faculties as to what we should be doing and can then be translated down to our, our own kind of um our own kind of areas and domains that we're working in and i kind of said to someone, so why why don't you have this that not up on your your wall is one of these things that you need to be taking on and their response was well you know anytime we ever develop a strategy and we take it to the senior leaders they just say no and they say no, because our strategy doesn't seem to be addressing the objectives that they have. Um, and I just kind of said to them, well, do, do you not sit down and have a conversation with them at the start of this process around what their objectives actually are? And, and the, the idea that you would even do that just seemed to be a bit of a shock to them. But that to me is just crazy because, you know, when we're doing good content, the the first thing we're thinking about is our audience. So when we're doing good strategy work that we need to persuade someone of, then we need to think about our audience for that, who are, of course, our internal stakeholders. So, you know, through having conversations like that, you do get to see them, you get them to see things in a slightly different way. But, uh, you know, going back to the original question, which is about how you get people to see their, their own kind of dirty underwear, so to speak, most of them know it. They, they know it already and I mean I know this has come up on some of your other podcasts so I'm just echoing what others have said here but I hear all the time people say to me that was like therapy um talking to you because you're enabling them to really get out those institutional problems that they face and also because I used to work in an institution I I, I know it I feel it I don't just kind of hear it and listen to it I, I can actually feel what they're experiencing so that kind of helps
0: so interestingly a lot of sort of the trajectory of these conversations of course happens over and over and over again no matter what industry we're talking about i mean we'll have clients come to us from retail and financial services and healthcare and uh you know oil and gas and politics and higher and everybody says well do you have experience in this industry and every time i just say you know look we, the topic is the topic is the topic, but people and the challenges that they have, the kinds of conversations that they need to have, the way that they think about content, that is, I often tell people there's a, you know, finite set of content challenges that manifest in a million different ways. And I want to talk a little bit about specifically how those challenges can manifest within the higher ed community. We used to hold, uh, for many years, we held Confab Higher Ed, which was a content strategy conference specifically dedicated, obviously, to higher ed folks. And for a variety of reasons, we we wrapped it all back into one conference. But we we were able to present that conference because there was a unique set of challenges faced within higher ed content strategy. Can you talk a little bit about some of those specific nuances?
1: Yeah, and, and I have to say to that point, while I love Confab so much, and, and it is like, for me, it's like a big family gathering every year, um, we, we set up Content Ed over here in the, in Europe because you guys wouldn't bring Confab Higher Ed to Europe. And we, oh, it's we needed a long it. story, and I'm so
0: yeah. grateful you did that. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. But,
1: you know, that 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 common empathy within the profession is, is you know, really, really felt at these kind of um, events. And, and, and what's happened with the, the Content Ed community is it's given a platform for that now narrative to play out to to discuss those kind of complicated issues so higher ed i I don't think we are completely unique i think there are other sectors out there that that do um have similar frustrations to us but some of the barriers that we experience in in higher ed are firstly there's this kind of crazy sort of you know we're not quite public we're not quite private um, line going on so that creates a very awkward perception of the institutions from people on the outside's view. They don't quite know how to deal with us. We're massively, um, I'm particularly in, in the UK, um, we're massively, massively subject to policy changes, political influences. And of course, education is always such a, a you know, a, a big kind of ticket sort of main platform manifesto type pledge that, that various politicians will be making. So we're constantly at the whims of, of this ridiculousness of kind of changing scenarios. Um, you know, in the UK, we're still living out this debate of should people pay for their, their tuition or should it be free? And obviously that's changed over the last kind of 15 years or so, um, or 20 years even as to, you know, whether, whether uh, higher education and undergraduate study is, is funded. So we have these big, big policy um, pressures playing to us. We have um, a challenge of... Brand positioning, all desperately trying to say why we're unique from other universities, but actually, fundamentally, we are not particularly unique from each mm. other. Um, so that, that kind of competition element, which has really um, crept in a little bit more uh, over recent years, particularly on this side of the pond, it's becoming really really challenging because fundamentally we do all do the same thing you know we're all in the business of research and teaching um and you know and translating that to society in in various different ways but often we teach very similar courses so we're often structured in very similar ways um you know we are you have two choices really you either study at a campus-based university or a city-based university so even you know architecturally and geographically they're not actually that different um, so that that gives us quite a bit of challenge and then they all go through these big brand exercises and and they kind of go right we've got it we've nailed it while well, we're different and we, you know one of the things you get to see from a consultant's point of view because you are working with multiple institutions you kind of die inside a little bit when they get excited about their new brand proposition and why they're different because you know what's going to come out of their mouth you've probably heard another university saying only two or three weeks ago so that makes it really really challenging to, to help them find that that unique voice for, for themselves The other challenges are things like, you know, the the type of community that we're dealing with, where academics are brilliant and brilliant in their own individual subjects. But what that often means is that they tend to have a loyalty, particularly those who are more research intensive. They have a real loyalty to their subject um, instead of necessarily having a loyalty to the institution that they work at. So you're dealing with these people who kind of work in very strange kind of networks and clusters that that actually float beyond the, the boundaries of the institution. And are subject to this thing called freedom of speech, which is absolutely amazing and, and right, but it makes it very, very challenging to be in that environment. And because they are people who, you know, are professional scrutineers, so to speak, um, it also means that they will scrutinize the work that you're doing to, to the nth degree. Professional scrutineers is, is professional
0: scrutineer is going in my Twitter bio. Like, that's I've my never, use, that's Yeah, my I've
1: never said that word before, that term before, but now I'm like, yeah, that is <laughs> and definitely what I can do. stopped you mean. in your it's tracks. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, you've inspired <laughs> me. <laughs>
0: What, tell me about what positive trends you're seeing then within content strategy, either, either specifically within the, higher ed, within the higher ed community, because that's a long laundry list of unique challenges uh, to be walking into any university to talk about their content. What kind of positive trends are you seeing in terms of how the conversation may be shifting around, around content and how universities are thinking about it and creating
1: it and managing it over time? I've seen a massive shift over the last... Um... To, um, 10, 15 years, in, yeah. in yeah, but, but particularly people thinking in the last um, maybe the last kind of five years or so of people really starting to understand what a user first experience actually looks like um, and, and working on that to dive into it. Now, at the moment, we're a little bit stuck sometimes in that we focus a lot on uh, understanding our, uh, our audiences from the perspective of the channels and platforms that they use and the information needs that they have in relation to us as an institution. In the work that I do, um, I'm quite keen to push it to t- two other layers with that. So I kind of have a four part um, way of thinking about how to understand an audience. Um, and those other two layers are that the first one is around their values, behaviors and motivations. So it's really about the thing that makes them a human being. And the thing that really gives them the fabric of the person that they are and is actually generally one of the bigger telltale signs um, as to the decisions that they will make in relation to our institutions, you know, because that point again about we're very, very similar in the education sector so the information that we're providing is often the same so actually what we need to be doing is playing more to the emotions um, in order to, to differentiate ourselves and we need to understand our audiences to do that and then the, the fourth part of understanding the audiences that we're, we're trying to push a lot further within the sector is uh understanding the influences that the inf- or the distractions as well that inform the decisions that people are making so i'm actually a really big fan of looking at what else are they looking at when we would want them to be looking at us um, i know that a lot of people in this profession will spend a lot lot. of time doing like really detailed content audits and things like that and looking at what's going on within our own world but I think we can get as much from what's going on in the rest of our audience's world to understand how they engage with and connect with content in different ways so um, it's more of an outward looking approach so we're starting to see some of those um, that understanding that we at least need to understand our audiences a lot better emerging in higher ed, but we tend to focus very much on the student audience um, in that respect because that's often where the financial drivers are if I'm being crude about it um, in, in the sector. So the, the, other, um, the, the other thing that's been a big shift in, in higher ed over the last, I'm going to say kind of 20 years really, um, is the recognition that marketing, communications and branding is not a dirty word. I mean, there are some institutions where you probably still couldn't talk about brand and there are some institutions that have probably only recruited their first like, director of marketing in the last few years um, because it was seen as such a dirty word before that you, you wouldn't really talk about that in higher ed. But that has, that has changed. And the other thing that comes with that, and this is why you know, the conference community is certain, is that what has also come with that is a recognition of the professionalism um, of people working in, in these careers and in these fields. Now, we haven't yet seen, I don't think, the shift from a content perspective for people recognizing that content is a profession as well. Um, and I think we're kind of just on the cusp of that happening at the moment. So that's kind of what I see as the community kind of around around me and around us in the work that we're doing with, with content ed over here um, is really about that. How do we change that narrative so that we can really start to rec- get people to recognize that content is a profession um, and that there are those of us out there that actually know what we're talking about when it comes to this stuff um, and, and need to have that kind of um, that, that scene a voice on the top seat within an organization.
0: And isn't it interesting? I mean, coming back full circle, a lot of the times the uh, advice that I will give to folks who are struggling to make themselves sort of known or to establish credibility around their content skills, oftentimes what I will remind them is that in order to get people to listen to them and to support them, they need to make those people feel heard in the first place. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. And so that comes right back around to what you were saying, you know, make people feel like it was their idea and make sure that stakeholder engagement is one of your top priorities as a content professional.
1: Yeah. And the number of times when I do stakeholder interviews and you kind of go in and they're like, well, we're, we're talking about the web project. So I'm going to give you a list of the features and functionality that the website needs um, and tell you this kind of stuff. And you sort of go, no, no, hang on, let's just take a step back. I, I kind of want to know what you want to do, what you need to achieve in your role here. You know, what, what are you actually working towards rather than talking about, you know, whether you need another sign up form for something over there? And and I think when you do that, people start to really respect, oh, hang on, this person actually really cares about what the institution's doing, not just what the website's going to do. And that does help to give you kind of more credibility. But the the other piece around that is is also, and this is so, so important. I I heard you talking in one of the other podcasts about people getting the confidence to put themselves forward as speakers and things like that. And um, I think it might have been Abby Covert you were were speaking to about this. And um, that, that point that, you know, embracing your vulnerability is actually really, really important when you're going out and speaking to stakeholders and getting and building your own credibility as much as it is when you're putting yourself out there on a public stage. So going into these scenarios, knowing that you build your credibility by actually showing what you don't know, um, as much as by showing people what you do know, um, is actually a really, really powerful way of doing that. You
0: know, I could not agree more and I think that I think that clients and and audiences and students in my workshops are always shocked when they ask a questions and I, a question and I say I don't know the answer to that, or I know just enough about that to sort of be dangerous. So let me go and look for some of the resources for you. But I agree. I think that that it's like when you go out to dinner and you say, "What can you recommend on the menu?" and the Mm -hmm. server says, "Eat these three things. Stay away from this thing." You're like, "Oh, okay. I trust you now."
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And in higher ed, if you can turn that kind of questioning back on them, of course. And remember, we're in a in a an environment where people are used to being respected as experts. So if you can then kind of turn that back on them, you know, that kind of you know, I I don't know the answer to that what what do you think that that kind of approach it actually makes them feel good as well it makes makes them feel feel like they're
0: valued it makes them feel heard and I think that that is when I give content strategy foundations workshops the very first thing I have my students do is interview one another and teach them how to listen because I think that that is, again, it comes back to our role as a content therapist. People need to be heard. They need to feel seen. And and then we can start talking about uh, how many sign-up forms they need on the website.
1: <laughs> I, um, I actually think content therapist should be a thing. And I think we should create that. I, I've, um, I've started to do quite a lot of coaching work over the last sort of year or so. And, and I love it because it it gives a it actually gives a mechanism for people who can't afford to to bring you in to develop an entire content strategy for them to to be able to access that and to to go through the process and the motions with them you you learn loads as the coach because you're just you know you're constantly kind of exposed to what they're doing and all you're really doing is kind of just tweaking and maneuvering them slightly but it does just the whole thing does just kind of feel like therapy the, the whole way through but hey i think that should be a career in its own right
0: uh, agreed. Changing my business
1: cards now. Yes.
0: <laughs> Tracy, I'm so excited uh, how you are working hard to change the conversation around content in the UK and, of course, the, the trips you've taken to, I think you've been in Australia and New Zealand and the US and all over the place. Uh, where can people find you online?
1: Uh, so the company website is picklejarcommunications.com or I am reasonably active on Twitter. So it's just uh, at Tracy Plough. So Tracy without an A-T-R-A-C-Y-P-L-A-Y-L-E. And hey, my, you know, my name is so unusual that if you search for me, you'll find me pretty much anywhere. And, have and you, thought about, have you <laughs> thought
0: about purchasing
1: tracypickle.com? Uh, I haven't, but I'm going to go and do that right now.
0: Yes. <laughs> it has to I'm- be done full of ideas. Uh, Tracy, thank you so much for, oh, and why don't you share with folks when content ed is coming up?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. So content ed um, is the, wow. Well, we used to say it was the only content strategy conference for the education sector in Europe. But now we think it's the only one in the world because you don't do confab uh, edu anymore. You're um, welcome. So we're, we're going to, we're claiming that. Um, so it's the 27th and 28th of June in the beautiful, beautiful city of Edinburgh. I'm so excited. I mean, I only live an hour and a half away from Edinburgh, but I, and I'm there a lot, but I love that city so much. Um, but also this year, this is really exciting. We're also launching the content ed awards. Um, because we think that there's some amazing work out there and that we're actually not good enough in this sector and in this industry at patting ourselves on the back so um, you know marketers they're patting themselves on the back all the time for the work that they do the campaigns they're doing so we're like we need to change that and and make sure that content professionals are getting the recognition they deserve so that's launching this year as well that's wonderful and what is the url for that conference Uh, so it's contentedlive.com
0: Wonderful. Tracy, congratulations on all the amazing work that you're doing. And thank you on behalf of the community. And it's a pleasure having you. Thanks for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Content Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Halverson. This podcast is brought to you by contentstrategy.com and Brain Traffic, a content strategy consultancy. Find out more about Brain Traffic at, of course, braintraffic.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.